Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. WBEN. Now, here's WBEN's Dave Depot. And what a week it is to talk politics. This is the week where the Senate will eventually return after Thanksgiving break and take up their version of tax reform. It has, of course, passed the House. It's passed the Senate Finance Committee, but they begin to go through it with the full Senate sometime this week, we assume. And then eventually, because the two sides are a little bit different, the House and the Senate get together. And the plan, at least, is to have some sort of tax reform on the president's desk coming up by Christmas. It's something the Republicans are pushing hard to have. The current plan takes the standard deduction and doubles it. It eliminates a lot of other deductions, and it certainly lowers the corporate tax rate. Let's get into all of that with David K. Johnston. It's a name you might have heard in the past year or so. David K. Johnston was the man who basically received Donald Trump's tax returns and uh, exposed them on MSNBC with Rachel Maddow earlier this year. But he's also a guy, and you've heard him on the program before, he's a tax analyst. He's a reporter, an investigative reporter. We'll talk a little bit about that. He's got his own uh, nonprofit investigative reporting center that he's working on. He's also a Pulitzer Prize winner. He's written a couple of books about the tax system, Free Lunch, How the Wealthiest Americans Enrich Themselves at Government Expense and Stick You with the Bill. He's also written a book called Perfectly Legal, The Covert Campaign to Rig Our Tax System to Benefit the Super Rich. He's a guy that really does understand a lot of tax policy. So I figured, uh, especially after we had Stefan Mahailu, the Erie County Comptroller, on the program last week, taking a fairly optimistic view of tax reform, I figured it would be interesting to have what I'm guessing, David, is the other side here by having David K. Johnston on this morning. Thanks for joining us, sir. Well, good morning, Dave. Glad to be with you. Do you like this plan? No, and I don't think anybody who is not a plutocrat should like this plan. First of all, it's not tax reform. Um, here's what this plan does. If you make $36,500 a year under the Senate bill, and remember there are two bills, a House and Senate bill, right? Uh, your after-tax income will rise on average by $0.20 cents a day. If you make $12 million a year, your after-tax income will rise by $1,000 a day. The benefits of this plan go overwhelmingly to people at the top, people who have more than sufficient incomes to support themselves and who will use it to save additional money. Uh, In addition, this plan will impose uh, taxes on strivers. Imagine that you grew up without much of an education, but you took a job as a cafeteria worker at a private college, knowing that if you kept that job, your children could go to that college if they had good grades and pay no tuition. But the Congress is planning to make that taxable income. If you're a graduate student getting a PhD and doing teaching assistant work, that is, you're one of the people who is going to make America richer in the future by adding to the value of the most valuable asset we have, which is rigorously developed minds, your teaching assistant pay and tuition waiver would be taxable. 
this I, I call this the idiot tax act because it means more money today for the already rich at the expense of the future wealth of America. There's even this interesting pair of provisions. If you buy an airplane ticket, you pay something called a passenger facility fee for the use of terminals. If you make t uh, a flight with a connection, you pay it twice. It's capped at 450 per segment right now, or $9 one way with two flights. It would raise this to double that level, $8.50, which is virtually doubling it. But the plan also would increase subsidies for people who own private jets. So ordinary people who fly will pay more. People who own private jets will be further tax subsidized by other taxpayers. This is not tax reform. This is socialist redistribution to the oligarch class. Can we argue that by, and I, I, I understand the examples you just cited, but in a general sense, would you agree that there are a lot of deductions that are ripped out in this plan? And can we argue that the elimination of deductions gets rid of special interests and makes it uh, more equality for the middle class guy? No, and here's why. The deductions that are being taken away are those that apply to the middle class. The accounting rules that turn the income tax into a profit center for many people, as I explained in Perfectly Legal, and everybody in the tax business will acknowledge who knows what they're doing is true through deferral of taxes. Those are all going to remain. Nothing is being done about those things. Uh, you mentioned doubling the personal exemption to $12,000, $24,000 for a married couple. Right. But they're also taking away the personal exemption. So right now, under current law, a married couple with no children doesn't pay any taxes on the first $20,700 they earn. Under the new plan, they would get $24,000. That's a little more money. But their initial tax rate wouldn't be 10%. It would be 12. And once you run through the 12% bracket, the 15% bracket would be eliminated, you would then go to 25%. This is the reason this plan heavily weighs against the middle class. And then people like me who own a business, or in my case, two businesses, um, I am going to now be able to convert my labor income taxed at the top rate into uh, uh, pass-through income taxed at 25%, which will work out to be a tax, tax savings for me of more than one-third. It won't change my behavior in any manner, way, shape, or form. It will just allow me to pay less taxes. So this is, no, this is not in any way tax reform. And the research that's been done by every group whose computer model has proven to be reliable, there are a whole bunch of computer models out there, they all show that, depending on the assumptions you make, because we don't have a final bill, between 38 and 67% of the benefits will go to the 1%, and most of that to the tenth of 1%. The 1% starts at about $600,000. The tenth of 1% at about $2 million. And the bottom half of the 1%, this is one of the things I get on liberals for all the time, attacking the 1%, the bottom half of the 1% are primarily two-income professional couples, a doctor married to a lawyer, an accountant married to a school principal. Um, uh, they're not plutocrats. They're not clipping coupons. These are people who work all year to make an income, and we tax them at the top rate. But if you make that much every day, if you make $600,000 a day, 
even if it's labor income, you would pay the same tax rate as a two-income couple who will work all year to make that money. And I think one of the questions we should be asking is, since we have people with billion-dollar annual incomes now in America, why don't we have higher marginal tax rates for people who make $10 million, $50 million, $100 million, a billion dollars a year? And I think the argument that you always hear, the counter-argument, is that the top 1% pays about 47% of all taxes. Uh, the, right now, the wealthy are supporting the tax burden. Therefore, the wealthy need the break. Therefore, this is fairness. Buck against that if you can. That the wealthy are, are heavily the people who pay taxes, okay? But here's what happens. The, the share of your income, the effective tax rate you pay in federal income taxes, rises till you make about $2 million, and then it flattens out. And when you get to about 8 or 10, it starts to fall. We literally have people in this country who have incomes of a million dollars a day and pay virtually no tax or none at all. Uh, in 2009, the top 400 taxpayers, six of them paid zero income tax, and I think it was another 40 of them paid less than 5%. And that's because of exemptions and deductions and things like that? No, no, actually, no. Exemptions are, that's a middle-class benefit, which is wiped out when you get further up the chain already. We take it away with something called peas and peps. We take it back at a rate of 3% per $30 per $1,000 of income. People at the top have rules that allow them to defer income. Imagine, Dave, if you could take all the income taxes were held with, withheld from your paycheck this year, and the government said, hey, you know what, we're going to let you keep the money. You can't spend it, but you can invest it. I'd like that. Years from now, you pay us the tax. You don't pay any interest on it. You get to keep all the savings. You realize how rich that would make you, right? Yeah, that, that sounds like a deal. Well, that's what very rich people get to do. They get zero interest loans by deferring their taxes. Multinational corporations, but not domestic companies like my company, multinationals get to defer their taxes by siphoning what would be profits earned in the U.S. offshore. For example, Nike, every time someone buys a pair of their shoes, pays a fee to its offshore subsidiary that owns the swoosh, its logo. And that becomes a tax-deferred loan from the government at zero interest. And multinational companies um, make a profit. When I first reported this uh, seven, 15 years ago, um, I, all sorts of people said, this is crazy, I don't know what I was talking about. And then Congress ordered the biggest study ever done by the Joint Committee on Taxation. They put out a three-volume, 1,800-page report that showed I was exactly right, and that, in fact, Enron had stamped its tax center documents, its tax department documents, profit center. If you want to read about this, uh, you can go to Google and put in my, my name in quotes, David C.A.Y. Johnston, Newsweek and Corporate Deadbeats. It's a cover story I did for them three years ago. I hate the headline, Corporate Deadbeats. But the facts in it will explain to you how corporations profit off the tax system by using the analogy of if you could buy a house on the same terms that multinational corporations pay their taxes, you would be paid to buy a house instead of paying interest to a bank. All right. Now, some of those who say that uh, that sort of thing is justified trot out the trickle-down argument. Right. Talk to me about that. If a company, I mean, unless I'm someone like you with maybe an S-Corp owning my own business, I got a rich guy signing my paycheck. And if he's got more money, he's going to invest more money in the business that I work for. He's maybe going to be able to give me a raise. Uh, yes, I know during, during Reagan's uh, tax 
situation, uh, tax cuts, that they held on to a lot of those profits because at the time the rest of the economy wasn't rising. But let's say we give a tax cut to the rich. Talk to me a little bit about trickle down. Will it trickle? Isn't it worth it to trickle? Because if my employer is doing better, don't I do better? No. In fact, there's actually zero evidence to that. And, and let me just make an initial basic point. I have never hired anyone because of a tax cut. I hire people when I have work to do. If more people show up at the hotel that we manage, we don't own it, we just were the managers, we hire more chambermaids, we hire more um, service guys, more janitors. But we only do that because we have more business. Nobody hires anybody for a tax cut. You hire to meet the demand for the products or services you have to supply to people. And uh, here's what happened after the George W. Bush tax cuts in 2001. Remember, we ran uh, surplus budgets during the last four years of Bill Clinton. Uh, the only two previous times in modern history we ran surplus budgets were the last year of LBJ and the last year of uh, Eisenhower. Um, George W. Bush said that his tax cuts would make us all better off. In October of 2000, I called the campaign and said, you know, guys, and I was at the New York Times then as a tax reporter, you're running these ads saying we're in the Al Gore recession, which we were in a recession at that point. We just hadn't been officially declared yet. So don't you want to put some, you know, hedges in here? I mean, if the economy goes into a recession in 2001, your claim that cutting taxes will make everybody better off isn't going to pay off for a while. What's the name of your editor? And I, find, and I gave them the direct dial line of the executive editor of the New York Times. But eventually they said, no, there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The George W. Bush tax plan is going to make people better off. We're going to have higher incomes. We're all going to be better off. I said, thank you very much. He said, when's your story running? And I said, in about 10 years. <laughs> of course, that's when we would have the data to go back and look. So every year I tracked the data. I adjusted for inflation and the number of taxpayers. And here's what happened over the 12 years that the George Bush tax cuts were in full effect. They were passed for 10, and then Obama agreed to a two-year extension. The total income earned by Americans was $6.3 trillion less income. This isn't taxes. This is earned income than if we had stayed at the level of 2000. And I didn't pick that year. George W. Bush did. During the years 2001 to 2010, the population of this country grew five times faster than jobs grew. Now, how much is that $6.3 trillion? Because does that mean anything to you? That number doesn't mean anything to me. Well, if it was equally divided, and I acknowledge it's a statistical measure, but it's to give you an idea of how much money it is, it's enough money to pay all the income taxes on it at the average rate Americans paid each year. It assumes all of it is labor income, so Social Security and Medicare taxes were paid on every dollar. It's enough money to then pay off every car loan, every credit card debt, every student loan in America, and every family would have over $20,000 cash left in their bank account. This was a disaster for the country. Incomes fell so much that it was the equivalent for those 12 years of working 11 years 
and then in the last year working through March, and then working without being paid for the last nine months of the year. I want to put forth another argument. A couple weeks back on this program, when we were talking about trickle-down and whether it was effective or not, we got a call from Russ Gagino. Russ is a former aide to the late Congressman Jack Kemp. Kemp, of course, the architect of Reagan-Kemp-Roth, the Reagan tax cuts. And when I raised the idea of trickle-down, Russ called in and basically said, that's not the way to look at it at all. Trickle-down is not necessarily the way we should examine this. We should look at it in terms of incentive for businesses to thrive. Here's what he said, and I want to get your reaction. First of all, um, the whole concept of trickle-down is nonsense. It's nonsense because that's not what this is about. This is trickle-up. Let me explain why. The rich already are rich. They don't need to have tax cuts in order to become rich. They're already rich. Donald Trump is already rich. What you want to do in a tax code is to create incentives for people to become rich so that it doesn't become when you, when you pull yourself up from your, your bootstraps and whether you've got a, a nail salon or a pizzeria, whatever it is, that you're not taxed to death when you succeed. All right. That, that's the argument. We have about a minute left before we take a break, and we'll pick it up on the other side. David K. Johnston, what do you say to that, that uh, trickle up is not the way to look at it? Just look at it in terms of fairness making the the rich pay less because right now they're paying more. No, that's not what he's arguing, and I fundamentally agree with his argument. People who want to start businesses who aren't already rich, they're the people that we need to give incentives to. And I have proposed in the past that we have a deal that you have a one-time $100,000 per person exemption on profits from a business, and you can take it in pieces over your lifetime. If your business uh, fails, you don't have to take it because you didn't make any money, and that would be a big incentive to get people to start businesses and build wealth. He's fundamentally right. The already wealthy don't need tax cuts. What we need to focus on is helping more people acquire wealth, which will make the whole society better off, and that starts with what we do with small businesses and people who want to start businesses but don't have the capital to do so. All right. John in Rochester, we'll hold you over and we'll get to you after the break. You run a business, don't you, John? And talk to me a little bit about uh, what a tax cut will do for you. Give me 10 seconds. We'll put you on hold, and we'll pick it all up on the other side. You get a tax cut. What do you do with the money? Well, I'll invest it back into the business for expansion, hire people, et cetera. That's kind of what I thought you'd said. It's the perfect tease before we take our break here. Stay with us. David K. Johnston is here. We'll take your calls after the break, some commercial messages in the news, and we'll be back in about five or six minutes from now talking about tax reform as it works its way through the Senate. Much more to come. It's Hardline on News Radio 930 WBEN. It's Hardline on News Radio 930 WBEN. Good morning. This is Dave Debo. We are talking about tax reform for the remainder of this hour. David K. Johnston is with us. He says the bill that's already gone through the House and is percolating its way through the Senate isn't tax reform at all. He says that in a lot of ways, it just puts more money in the hands of the rich. And he's someone, by the way, let's give you just a brief bio here. He's written two books on tax policy and even got a Pulitzer Prize in 2001 for reporting on all the loopholes in the tax system. Earlier before the break, you heard him say, and David, I don't want to put any uh, words in in uh, your mouth here. So, so summarize for me, if you can, uh, the idea of what happens to money uh, if, if it's given to more businesses? Do they necessarily reinvest it in the business? Give me that argument one more time, because I think we've got a caller on the line that wants to push back against it a little bit. Well, it depends a lot on what kind of a business you have. If you have a capital-intensive business 
a high tax rate actually encourages you to reinvest in the business. Let's assume the tax rate's 50% and you want to spend a million dollars to develop a new line. If you can expense that immediately, it means that you only spend a half a million dollars to get a million dollars worth of benefit the first year because the government's picking up half of it through the tax deduction. If you have a labor-intensive business with almost no capital expenditures, and that's many, many of the six million businesses in this country, then those rules are different. Uh, and just to be clear, I, um, I, I, I have, have, have a near completing a book that proposes an entire new tax system for the 21st century economy, and in that system I eliminate the corporate income tax, but I replace it with something else because if you don't, if you just eliminate it, Many, many companies will be like Apple. They will, instead of reinvesting, paying money out to their owners or paying money to their workers, they'll put it into a corporate mattress. Um, um, Apple has uh, more than a quarter of a trillion dollars essentially held in cash offshore. Um, but at the end of the day, I would get rid of the corporate income tax because it's inefficient and because for the 3,000 companies that control 80% of assets in this country, it's a profit center and it shouldn't be. Taxes should be a burden that we all bear to support the government that makes our liberty and our wealth possible. All right. Now let's bring in John in Rochester. John, you are a business owner. Let, let, let's say I'm President Trump and I magically give you a tax cut. What do you do with it? Uh, explain how that equation works for you. Well, what I do immediately, and I, I've done this, uh, I started a business in 81 and had a couple businesses. Uh, I bought a couple businesses since then, sold some, whatever. But but uh, what I I have done through uh, Reagan and uh, the Bush Bush uh, years and his tax cuts, and then even even Clinton Clinton uh, toward the end of his second term uh, with the Republican Congress, uh, they Clinton uh, there was some tax cuts there uh, that they weren't as as massive as uh, the Bush tax cuts and of course Reagan. But what I I tend to do is to uh, invest in uh, new business from a standpoint of hiring people to market our services and our product. And uh, I start with that that aspect and look to acquire other businesses also. All right. So, so David, uh, would he benefit from it? Well, that's what I would expect you would do if you have a business that will grow. But notice the discussion here is not about investing in the business per se it was about acquiring new businesses there's been discussion about selling businesses uh, bill clinton signed a law sponsored by the republicans that significantly reduced capital gains taxes on selling businesses um and um uh, you know every business different businesses have different incentives in front of them and different financial issues that they face Capital-intensive businesses are not the same as labor-intensive businesses, for, as I said before. Hey, though, from an entrepreneur's standpoint, uh, I think it's to uh, try to expand our existing business, try to look for other opportunities, whether it's in that business or businesses that could be related, that type of thing. Uh, I just think it's our nature, whether uh, it's capital-intensive or not. But uh, I think that really is the case. All right. More broadly, though, David, you say that it's not always the case. The the apples and maybe the GMs of the world uh, don't necessarily do what uh, John in Rochester does. That that no, that's right. And and there, there, you know, just as there is no one shareholder, somebody, some 
funds own a stock for a fraction of a second. Some people hold a stock for life and multiple generations. There's no one business. Different businesses have different interests. There's no question that we need to change the way that we tax businesses. It's one of the reasons I want to get rid of the corporate income tax. But on the other hand, different businesses will make different choices. If, for example, you're at a point in life where you don't want to expand your business, you want to work less and take it easier, you're more likely to take a tax cut and put it into your retirement or savings account. When the business that my son and I run, I'm now out of it, I'm the retired chairman, um, he called me one day uh, in December, late December, and said, I made an error, we're going to have bigger profits than I thought. And I said, how much? And he told me, and I said, well, listen, pay yourself a bonus or put some of it in your retirement plan. And he said, actually, I'd like to buy a printer so that we don't go to a print shop anymore. We print our own brochures, and we bought it. And that machine has paid for itself now about six times over. We still have it 10 years later. It's still working because he bought a quality machine. And it was a smart investment. But different businesses make different choices at different times. Um, and we need to just understand that most of the 6 million businesses in this country are pass-throughs. The cutting the corporate tax rate does not benefit them one bit. All right. Now, I want to bring up another argument. Last week on the program, we had Erie County Comptroller Stefan Mihailo in here. He uh, had just returned from the White House meeting with the vice president to try and promote tax reform. And a lot of his argument was, let the process play out. If, if, if there are things in here that aren't good, maybe they will be balanced out by things that are good. We need to let it move forward because some reform is at least better than no reform. Here's what he said. It's very good to have the discussion. It's very good uh, for people to express their concerns. And now they can do so at the Senate side. They can still do so at the congressional side. And, yes, there is a general concern about things like that when it comes to the elderly. It comes to the salt. I have those concerns, too. But I think we need to take a deep breath and at the end of the day, have an analysis when the process is finished and near completion to see exactly how it would impact taxpayers. So you say, let it vote. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Exactly. And he was talking specifically there about the deduction of state and local taxes, the SALT deduction. But in a general sense, what's wrong with his bigger argument, David? Uh, Let this happen. Uh, We haven't had tax reform since when. Why not get something going? Because maybe something is better than nothing. How How do you respond? Well, 1986 tax reform was real tax reform, and it eliminated a lot of things that were... Uh, unacceptable to, to uh, sound economics. They, they interfered with sound economics. But let's remember what these two bills are. First of all, Donald Trump said on September 5th, in September of 2015 that he had a tax plan all ready to go, completely done. Uh, in fact, he didn't have any plan at all. It was part of his con job. And, and having had lunch and tried to give Donald tax advice, because you know I'm his leading biographer in the world. My book is far and away the leading biography of Donald Trump. The making of Donald Trump on shelves now. That's right, and I have another one coming out in January. Donald doesn't know anything about taxes, but he conned people into believing he had a tax plan. Then we got a 100-word statement on taxes in April of this year, which read like a shopping list for Goldman Sachs clients. Then we got an eight-page plus a cover sheet uh, a document. There had been no public hearings in the writing of the House and Senate tax bills. This was not done by normal order. Taxes are central to our democracy. The first power we grant our Congress in the Constitution is the power to tax. In fact, we live in the second American republic. We replaced the first one, which failed because it lacked the power to tax and to regulate commerce, and that's how we got the Constitution. 
This bill was not written in public. It was not written openly. Only Republican members of Congress and lobbyists they chose to speak to had a role in shaping this bill. No Democrat was allowed. There were no public hearings. This is not normal order. Isn't that how the process goes, though? The other side always argues, look at health care reform. There were public hearings, extensive public hearings on health care reform. That's simply not a a, a valid uh, 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 example. Um, You know, Obamacare has lots of things wrong with it, and, and I've been highly critical and pointed out a number of things, not the least of which is, if we had the French or German health care systems, it would save an amount of money equal to eliminating the income tax for everybody who makes less than a half a million dollars a year. That's a statistical measure, but to give you an idea of how wasteful our system is and how inefficient it is and how damaging it is to business, by the way. Uh, uh, you want to help small business in America? Remove health care from the equation. When I hire someone, I don't care what their religion is. I don't care who they love. I don't care what church they do or don't go to. But their health status is my business because I have to insure them for health care. That's crazy. That's just it it interferes with especially small business. It doesn't matter to General Electric. They're so huge. It's no different than if we had national health care. But for small businesses, it's a terrible burden and creates all sorts of uneven playing fields. That would be much more significant. Universal no out-of-pocket health care, like the French and the Germans have, are virtually no out-of-pocket that, that is unrelated to employment. It's one of the reasons auto factories have decided some of them to be in Ontario instead of in uh, New York or Michigan. Uh, it's because health care there is not on the books of the company. But this is not the way to do tax. Tax should be done in the open. It should be uh, uh, members who propose items should have their names on them. And, and this is a system we're going to raise taxes on strivers who are getting an education so that people with private jets can have his and her jets instead of a single jet. That, that just, there's no economic gain for society in that whatsoever. It will not make us wealthier in the future. It will make us poorer in the future. And don't forget that a number of leading Republicans, and I'm a registered Republican of many years standing, a number of the leading Republicans... Oh, now, wait a minute, because a lot of people, uh, when they hear your name, they think, they think of you sitting on a set with Rachel Maddow. Um, I, I want to underline that. You are not necessarily a liberal. That's not a tag that someone can hang on your toe or your ear, can they? A- absolutely. And, you know, I used to appear on Fox until I get tired of my correcting the unfactual statements of their hosts that were just wrong, and, and uh, uh, so they don't have me on anymore. But the... The, uh, my books champion competitive markets and integrity in business. All right. Let's take a couple more callers now. 803-0930 is the number. David K. Johnston is here. He's an investigative reporter, former president, I believe, of IRE, the Investigative Reporter and Editor Group. And uh, he's with us now for another 15 minutes or so before Meet the Press comes your way. Ed in Buffalo, you're on the air. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Dave, you got a great guest and you got a great show as usual. Uh, Mr. Johnson, two things that are on my mind. 1913, I believe, is when the federal government created income tax Correct. situation. And then uh, last week, Dave, you had Mr. Mahalo right. talking about uh, his conversation with Vice President Pence. And we're going to be able to uh, do our income tax uh, with a postcard. And I thought that would be an extremely ridiculous statement. And, and also, it's illogical. How do you replace 70,000 pages of the federal tax code 
and I hope that's correct in making that statement, with a postcard. I'd like, I'd like to have your comments. You're a great guest. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for the call. Well, uh, let's talk about simplification. Is, is it theoretical or is it possible? It's entirely possible, and my book, The Prosperity Tax, that should be out in 2019, will show how to do this and eliminate income tax filing for almost anybody. If you in want. the meantime, though, how would we do it? Tell, tell me now. Well, first of all, the majority of Americans can file on a one-page tax return. Lots of these people pay someone to prepare it. They pay them 80 bucks, but it's a one-page form. And in California, they adopted something where if you only have labor income, you don't have to file a tax return because the government knows what your income is. It's only itemizers. That's about one in three people, and they are higher income people who file complicated tax returns. And, and you know, my tax return runs about state and federal 80 pages a year here in Rochester, and that's ridiculous. This is absolutely absurd. We don't need to have that. And doesn't the proposal that's now pending in Congress get rid of enough deductions to simplify it in that direction? Is that not some good you can point to? Well, that's one, No, it doesn't. It goes after ordinary middle-class uh, things. It doesn't go after the devices that very wealthy people in different industries can use to target. And by the way, the, the official federal government printout of the tax code is a little under 6,500 pages, not 70,000. Okay. The tax code, I'm actually writing the statutory language for my proposed tax code for the U.S., and it will be less than 100 pages long when I'm done because I get rid of all this, these favors that say, you know, company A has to pay this tax, but if you meet this qualification over here, which it turns out company A doesn't, but company B does, they don't have to pay the tax or they can defer their tax. I get rid of all of that garbage. This bill does not get rid of that stuff. All right, enough time to squeeze in a couple more phone calls after the break. 803-0930 is the number. David K. Johnston is here. He's a reporter who has studied and written about tax policy for quite a long time. Two books and a Pulitzer Prize about taxes under his belt. More to come. Your calls as well after this. It's Hardline on News Radio 930 WBE. It's Hardline on News Radio 930 WBEN. This is Dave Debo. It's always the case at the end of the program when we don't have a lot of time. That's when we've got a lot of callers. So let's try to run through them now quickly. David K. Johnston is here ready to take your calls. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. He's done quite a bit of work, at least two and a third book on the way about taxes. He's also written extensively about the Trump administration. 803-0930. John in Buffalo, you're up now. Quickly, go ahead. Hi. Yeah. Good morning. Hi, David. Um, my question concerns the uh, uh, hedge fund hedge fund budget managers who make uh, say less than fifteen percent and uh, operate under what I think is a sketchy law and I don't like. And also they uh, pay less than fifteen, and also they hide some of their money offshore in these um, Caribbean uh, bank accounts, which are said to be opaque. I'm just interested in your comments on that. All right, A does it exist, and B does it exist under the new plan? Oh, it exists, and in fact, many hedge fund managers have said there's no economic logic to this. It's a sheer political giveaway to people who run hedge funds. And the real scandal isn't that they pay 15%. It's that by using these offshore accounts, you make uh, at least 20 of them make a billion dollars a year. You don't pay any taxes on the money immediately. You defer it into the future, and then you pay 15%. So you effectively get... Uh, a loan from the government of a, on a billion dollars of $150 million interest-free. And if you invest that $150 million over time, you make money off the tax system. So absolutely, they should go after this, what's called carried interest. There's no economic justification for it. And you've talked a lot during this program about what this tax reform proposal would do for the wealthy. 
Talk briefly, if you can, just by way of recap, what it would do for the middle class. Average family uh, itemizes their deductions, uh, husband, wife, two kids, making anywhere from, uh, let's peg it at around $75,000. Well, that's actually just about where the middle class is in the middle. And uh, family at about $75,000, depending on which of the computer models you look at, is going to save somewhere between a few hundred dollars and maybe a little over $1,000. But if you have um, no children, you will pay more. If you are single, you'll, pay, you'll likely pay more. About one in six middle-class families will pay higher taxes under either the House or Senate bill. And how is that? What, what happens to them? Is it just the loss of the deductions they're currently taking? Yeah, uh, one of them would be losing the state and local tax deduction, um, which for some people is, is going to be significant. Um, another is the way we're, we would change exemptions versus uh, deductions for people. Um, and, and then there's the increased rate. I mean, remember, the bottom rate is now 10% and then 15 And most of the taxes, the biggest single element of taxes, over 30%, is raised at the 15% rate. Well, that would be eliminated, and the rates, instead of being 10, 15, and then uh, 25 and up, would be 12, 25, 35. And you can see the big jump there is from 10 to 25, and that would hit people in the middle class who are in the low six figures. If you're $100,000 a year, it's going to hit you hard. And at the bottom, 12% is overcome pretty quickly by the fact that you're, you will lose things like the exemption for your children. All right. Frank in Williamsville, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Probably the final call we can get to today. Good morning. Would the world end if they disengage? You mentioned health care. If they disengage FICA and, 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 and all the other taxes that come out of our paychecks and gave, gave employees the gross amount of their check and asked them to pay uh, based on some kind of consumption tax once or twice a year, uh, pay their tax. Are all employees... I'm sorry, uh, in the interest of time, I let him go already. I assume that's what he was saying. Yeah. Um, well, that's what the Nordic countries do. Basically, everybody's lifetime health care expenditure, when you eliminate the few outliers, there are very few people who never get sick, and there are few people who cost a fortune from the moment they're born. When you eliminate the outliers, our health care spending doesn't vary that much by person. So in the Nordic countries, they finance it with a value-added tax. It's like a sales tax, somewhat similar to sales. It's a consumption tax. And we all end up paying the same thing, but we get the benefit of mass purchasing. If we had that kind of a system, it would eliminate enormous numbers of make-work jobs, all these clerks, all the paperwork we deal with that's so annoying. And I've had people justify, well, we need those jobs. Well, if that's the case, then let's ban uh, earth-moving equipment at construction sites and make everybody uh, use shovels. I mean, you want to have efficiency. Tell me what you think will happen. Tell me what you think you want to happen, and I'm guessing those are probably two different items. Yeah, Dave, I think it's entirely possible we won't see a bill at all because uh, we have the hedge fund Republicans, the Wall Street Republicans, the big business Republicans, the small business Main Street Republicans, and the fiscal purity Republicans, and they're all in disagreement about what they want to do here. So it's possible there'll be no bill. Um, if we get a bill, it will almost certainly be heavily weighted to the wealthiest among us, in terms of their benefits, and it won't address the accounting rules that turn the burden of the income tax into a profit center for multinational companies and certain individuals. But isn't incentivizing wealth a, a good thing? Uh, helping the wealthy is okay, trickle down, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, if you've already got $10 billion, tell me what the benefit is of having uh, one more billion dollars. 
better we should have ordinary people who are able to own their own homes outright, have savings, if they want, start small businesses, so that we have a broader set of a, a level of wealth in this country and not the extremes that we've developed over the last 37 years in this country. An ideal tax system follows a set of well-established principles that have been agreed to for a couple hundred years now by economists right, left, across the board. It's simple, it's easy to pay, it's paid at a convenient time, and it's progressive because uh, the only reason you can become wealthy is you don't live in the jungle in man's natural state. You live in a civilized society that has court, civil, and criminal to protect you. It has rules on what your property is. Go to a country like Honduras, and you'll see one of the reasons people are poor is that the laws are not at all protective of wealth. And we've got about 30 seconds left here. When you say progressive, that isn't on the liberal conservative uh, spectrum. What do you mean when you say progressive in terms of taxes? Progressive means that the greater the gain you achieve, the higher the tax rate you pay on the next marginal dollar. And every classic world worldly philosopher, even John Locke, favored it. Locke said we should have no taxes on the poor and low taxes on everybody else. That's a progressive system. Uh, we need to have a system that reaps the winners because we've got to pay for people who are the economic losers, unless, of course, you want to take a solution like the Nazis did and go around killing children who have something uh, wrong with them. David K. Johnson, that's all we have time for. Thanks so much for joining us. Now it's off to Meet the Press on News Radio 930, WBEN Buffalo. All star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.